Please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 5, beginning in verse 16 today. As we go to God's word, let's go to him once again in prayer, asking for his help. Almighty God, Our Heavenly Father, indeed, as we just sang, we need your spirit to open our eyes to see the truth of your word. So, Father, we pray that your word and spirit would be at work today in this church, in our lives, that you would be pleased to um, both instruct us and encourage us through what is written. Father, may your word before us be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we are in the last third of Galatians. Uh, We are exploring uh, the gospel according to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians, and we remember that the first two chapters were a An autobiography, Paul is defending his gospel ministry. In the next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, he unfolds really the heart of the theology, justification by faith alone. And in these last um, two chapters is the practical outworking of that doctrine. Paul needed to write a letter because there were problems in the church, problems brought about by false teachers who who were saying um, not that faith in Jesus Christ is not necessary, but they were saying in different ways that faith in Christ is not enough. And it's the not enough that Paul knew was a clear and present danger to the gospel. It was a threat. He couldn't get back in person, so he did what was done in particular in those days to write a letter. And here we are, almost 2,000 years later, benefiting from this letter that Paul wrote to the church. As Paul moves from theological exposition to practical theological application, remember, where does he start? He starts with freedom. He starts with biblical freedom. The theme of Galatians, as we've been seeing in in Galatians 2, verse 16, is justification by faith alone. Three times he he reminds us, and all throughout this letter, he is, in the words of Martin Luther, beating it into our heads continually. This doctrine of justification by faith is not just sit on a shelf. It's not just something that you need for an oral exam or a written exam. No, it leads to something. It leads to freedom. Paul will continue that theme as in saying what counts. And in verse 6 of chapter 5, he says that what counts is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but what counts is faith working through love. And faith energizes love. And love at its heart is self-giving. It is self-sacrificing. And Paul is talking about that the arena for love is freedom, freedom that Jesus Brings. In the first 12 verses of chapter 5, it's don't lose gospel freedom by falling back into legalism, falling back into some, something of works righteousness, of the, the addition to faith in Christ that some people think they need. 
But beginning in verse 13, as we saw last week, don't abuse gospel freedom by running ahead into license. Indeed, last week we saw in verses 13 through 15 that the Christian is now free to serve. We are called to freedom. We are called to serve. The freedom is not a freedom. uh, It is freedom from sin. It is not freedom to sin. And we saw last week that Christian liberty is not freedom to indulge the flesh. It is not freedom to exploit our neighbor. It is not freedom to disregard the law of God. Because the exercise of Christian freedom brings with it self-control, loving service to our neighbor, and obedience to the law of God. Through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Christian has been freed from the curse and the condemnation of sin and is now free, now free to serve one another through love. Notice the relationship and the progression between faith working through love and through love serving one another. My friends, your faith, The faith that God has given you to trust in Jesus, that is actually foundational for how you are to love and care for others. Paul is making it very clear as to how this progresses, how it unfolds. There's faith, then there's love, and then there's service. This doctrine is not, again, an academic-only doctrine. It's not something that you check in and you check out on Sunday and check back in on Sunday. It is something for all of life. Now, what is your response to this call to through love serve one another? That's where we were last week. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He ends that section. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's showing what it looks like when you don't love and serve one another. That's what it looks like. So what is your response to this call? Easy? No problem. I got it. You know, no problem. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times I'm at a restaurant and I thank the server. And what do they say? No problem. You know, they should say, you're welcome, right? Thank you, you're welcome. But they say, no problem, as if it would be a problem to do what they're being paid to do, to serve. But if you respond to this call to through love, to serve one another with no problem, I I don't know if we understand the depth of what Paul is calling for here. I mean, do you respond to this by saying, Instead of easy, no problem. Do you respond like this? Are you kidding me? This is not only difficult, it's downright impossible. Indeed, it is a problem. It is a problem. Paul would agree. It is indeed impossible in and of your own strength, your own ability. But Paul wants his readers to know then and now that they are not alone. Someone is coming to their aid. Jesus Christ, Paul has made clear, sets us free. Now he will say and let us know that the Holy Spirit keeps us free so that liberty does not fall back into slavery or lean forward into license. The Holy Spirit enables Christian liberty to get on and stay on the road of love. 
Because not just the freedom road, as we talked about a week or two ago, this is the road of love. And on either side of the road of love is legalism, the ditch of legalism and the ditch of license. And Paul is going to make clear, beginning now, that the Holy Spirit enables Christian liberty to get on and stay on the road of love. Join with me as I read verses 16 through 18 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now as we unpack and explore our text, we'll come to see three prominent features. The command, the conflict, and the confidence. The command, the conflict, and the confidence. We find the command in verse 16. What does Paul say to do? Walk, walk by the Spirit. Now remember the indicatives and the imperatives, the statements of fact, the statements of what God has done in Christ and the imperatives, what we are to do in response. Here, Paul is issuing an imperative. Walk, walk by the Spirit. Now in the scriptures to walk it regularly represents the pattern and conduct of all of one's life. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a way to say live. Live worthy of the calling you have received. We read in um, Ephesians, walk worthy of the calling. Walk is your manner of life. And here Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And here he's implying direction and power making decisions and and choices according to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and acting with the power that the Holy Spirit supplies. Walk by the Spirit. Now let's look thus far at how Paul has spoken of the Holy Spirit thus far in his letter. Turn back with me to chapter 3. I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness so Paul has already brought the spirit in receive the spirit um, begun by the spirit if you see in verse 13, uh, verse 14 of chapter uh, 3 so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive 
The promised spirit through faith. Paul knows that the spirit has been promised. The spirit is received through faith. And then in verse 6 of chapter 4. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then in chapter 5, look with me at verse 5. We read this, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul brings to bear the Spirit's work and he commands his reader, walk by the Spirit. And then what does he say will happen? What's the payoff? You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. First a command, then a promise. Along the lines, I believe, that you will not be able to gratify the desires of the flesh because you will see as we go further the mutual exclusivity of the spirit and the flesh. Now, Paul has introduced this idea of walking. So join with me in this. When we are walking, we're not going to be able to stop along the way and take advantage of an opportunity for the flesh. Why? Because you're walking. Remember earlier he talked about don't give the flesh an opportunity? Here he says walk. Don't stop. Turn around. Look. Listen to the voices. No. Keep walking. The command Paul gives, the instruction that he issues, sets the stage for a discussion of the conflict. And we see the conflict in verse 17. War has been declared. A state of hostilities does exist. Now, you history buffs, you may remember how this speech on December 8th, 1941, given by the president before a joint session of Congress, begins. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Well, that's how it starts. Does anybody remember how it ends? It's not a long speech, but here's how it ends. Franklin Delano Roosevelt says this, hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interest are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, earlier in Romans, we read, we have Peace. We have been justified by faith. We have peace. But my friends, this is the peace that begins the war. Because when we are at peace with God, we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some of you were with us a few years ago in our series in Ephesians. Don't just do something. 
stand there fighting the good fight of the faith where we saw the battle we face, the weakness we possess, and the strength God provides. You'll see in the quote, in the something to think about quote, and as we will confess our faith using chapter 13 of the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, we, you will see that the Christian is involved in a continual and irreconcilable war. A Christian lives in two worlds, both this world and the world to come, the already and the not yet. Let's talk first about the geography, the location of the battle. It's not Oahu territory of Hawaii. That was the location on December 7th. No, the location of this battle is not out there somewhere. It is rather in here. It is the war within. It is a civil war within your own heart that is not so civil. In James chapter 4 verse 1, we read this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The war is not over there. The war is in here. It's a Christian conflict. Timothy Keller in The Reason for God in the chapter entitled The Problem of Sin writes this, quote, The real cultural war is taking place inside our own disordered hearts, racked by inordinate desires for things that control us, that lead us to feel superior and exclude those without them, and that fail to satisfy us even when we get them. It's real tempting for believers to say, you know what, the problem is out there. Paul wants us to see first and foremost that the problem, the battle, the war is taking place in our own hearts. And when we understand what's going on in our own hearts, we will be more equipped and more motivated to, as it were, serve the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. Yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast, together we prayed a few prayers from the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And one of the prayers had this statement, my enemy is within the citadel. The enemy is within. Now, who are the combatants? Who are the participants in this battle? Well, it's pretty clear. It's the flesh and the spirit. Paul uses flesh in a number of different ways. You can even hear how he uses it in Romans and here. But what we see here is it, it's, it's what we are based on our natural birth, what we are by nature and inheritance, our fallen condition. The sinful nature is that within us which wants to be our own Savior and Lord. That's our flesh. And the Spirit is what we, what we have become by the new birth. It's what we are by the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Most of your translations, I believe, will have it capitalized because Paul is emphasizing it's just not this immaterial part of you. No, it is the third person of the Trinity. It is the Holy Spirit who is taking up residence in the life of the believer. And next week we will examine in detail the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21 and the fruit of of the Spirit in verses 22 through 23. The location of the battle is within us. 
The participants are the flesh, our, our, our fallen nature, and, and, and the, the spirit, this renewed new nature. Now, the center of the battle, where is the action taking place? Notice it's with the desires. With the desires. And you see how verse 17 ends. This, this war, this battle, this opposition to keep you from doing the things you want to do. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, at first, this was quite confusing to me. Wait a minute. I've often said, you know what? When we sin, we want to sin. And when we do righteously, we want to do right. Well, yes, there is an aspect to that. But let's go back to the Bible. Look with me back in Romans. We read earlier, life in the Spirit. Well, before that, in chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, says this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not, for if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's helpful. Because the Christian, the, the believer wants to please God. The believer wants to obey God. The believer, and I trust you, want to love and serve your neighbor. No Christian I know wants to be sinfully anger, angry. No Christian I know says, you know what, today at 3.05 p.m., I, I desire to be sinfully angry. No. However, when someone steps on our idol, what happens? Sinful anger erupts. Along with reading Romans 7, I was greatly helped by these words from J.I. Packer in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, in a section entitled, Living Naturally as a Child of God. Here's what Packer writes. We were born sinners by nature, dominated and driven from the start, and most of the time unconsciously, by self-seeking, self-serving, self-deifying motives and cravings. Being united to Christ in new birth through the regenerating work of the Spirit has so changed our nature that our heart's deepest desire, that is the dominant passion that rules and drives us now, is a copy, faint but real, of the desire that drove our Lord Jesus. That was the desire to know, trust, love, obey, serve, delight, honor, and enjoy His heavenly Father a multifaceted, many-layered desire for God and for more of Him that has been enjoyed thus far. The natural way for Christians to live is to let this desire determine and control what they do so that the fulfilling of the longing to seek, know, and love the Lord becomes the mainspring 
of their life. That greatly helped me understand this statement. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul is a pastor. He was a church planner. He's writing to encourage these people. Yes, he's writing to warn them, but he's saying, I know you want to please the Lord. I know you want to to, uh, follow the Lord. And here is a war going on within you. We've looked at the geography of the battle, the, uh, the participants of the battle, the, the uh, center of the battle. Well, now I want to mention the importance of the battle. To both recognize the battle and to rejoice in the battle. Martin Luther spoke of a Christian being simultaneously just and sinful. Are you out of your mind, Luther? You're the guy that's been beating this doctrine into our heads. What a Christian is both just and sinful? Uh, Yes. Yes, until that day when the kingdom of grace becomes the kingdom of glory. Here's the battle, here's the struggle, and I've often wondered, why doesn't God perfect us immediately? Have you ever wondered that? Have you wondered whether I've been saved I'm in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. Why do I still sin? Why? Somehow in God's perfect plan, it glorifies Him. Because what do we do when we are struggling with sin? We reach out to Him. We reach out to one another. Angels, Peter writes, long to look into the good news of the gospel. The battle is real. Have you ever met people who deny the battle? Who somehow get on the express train to perfection? Who deny the struggle? I remember years ago when I was on staff with the Navigators, I had the joy in Texas to to serve on a team with a man born on my birthday 38 years ahead of me. And he was a delightful man who loved the Lord, loved God's word, and loved people. And Pete used to tell me that the most encouraging times in his discipleship ministry were with the young men who were struggling, the young men who would come to faith in Christ and fall on their face and get back up and keep going. He said that the folks that thought they had it all together, it was just hard to minister to them. But those who recognized their sin, recognized their Savior, and were pursuing the Lord through difficulty and trials and temptations, he said it was a joy to work with. And I have found that to be the case. Years ago, when a friend came to faith in Christ, he came to me and said, why am I struggling? This this Jesus thing has made my life harder. He didn't struggle as a non-believer. Why? he loved his sin. Now, he was fundamentally changed such that he now had a hatred of sin. And I encouraged this friend. I said, man, this is a sign of life. You are alive. You didn't hate sin. You didn't struggle before you knew the Lord. So my encouragement to all of you, 
recognize the battle, and by God's grace, rejoice in the battle. Because Paul has given his readers a command, walk. He has described this conflict. It's a war. And now he will go on to talk about the confidence available to the believer in the fight. The confidence. It's a war that has been and will be won. Verse 18. The war will not last forever. It will not end in a stalemate. It will not end in defeat, but rather in victory. A month or so ago, we were at Fairhaven Rescue Mission, and every time we're there, we sing, what is it, 473? Victory in Jesus. It's a hymn that's not available in our hymnal. It's a wonderful gospel rescue mission hymn, Victory in Jesus. And I made the statement after we sang that, I mean, if given a choice between victory and defeat, choose victory. If given the choice of whether you win or lose, everybody chooses winning. Nobody wants to lose. In fact, someone has said it pays to be a winner. You know, if you go into a conflict, a war, a battle, not confident that you will win, then you will not fight to the finish. You will give up. All of you have served alongside people at work, and I've served alongside people in the military. They're not confident, they're not assured. The Christian has the resource to be assured, to be confident. Because if you go into the conflict, into the war, thinking I'm going to lose, usually your aim is not so good. Usually your strategy and your tactics are not that sound. I just saw a movie the other day where the commander was speaking to these troops and he was, he was talking about that... Um, you know, you're going to go in and the odds are great that most of you aren't going to make it out. And he turns around, he was the leader of a, a small group of 12 soldiers, and he said, no, we're all coming out. We're coming back. He had confidence, not arrogance. He had confidence. You, in this battle between the flesh and the spirit, are you confident not an arrogant, presumptuous confidence, but I mean confident that the Lord is with you. Because look with me at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, you're walking with the Spirit, but the Spirit is actually leading you. There's an active personal involvement by the Holy Spirit in guiding Christians. And I'm so thankful we sang that hymn because I think you could see it as we sang it. And notice, it's a present activity. But if you are led, if you are being led by the Spirit, then what? You're not under the law. You're no longer under the pre-Christian system. You're no longer under the curse of the law. You're no longer under the condemnation of the law. Under the law is how the heart continues to function in the flesh. It rejects the free gift of Christ's righteousness and salvation and continues to seek its own. It's the, it's the Jesus plus. The sin underneath all sins, the motive for our disobedience is always a lack 
of trust in God's grace and goodness and a desire to protect and guard our own lives through self-salvation. So when Paul says it's Christ or circumcision, he's saying it's Christ alone who provides for our salvation, not Christ and anything else. And notice, there is hope and confidence and assurance. Go back with me to verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And as we talked about that a few weeks ago, that hope of righteousness is sure and certain. Yes, you are walking by the Spirit. Yes, you are being led by the Spirit. And it is through the Spirit, by faith, that we are eagerly waiting for the battle to be over. The command, the conflict, and the confidence. Or for those of you that like W, the letter W, the walk, the war, the win. A few final thoughts. Next week we will explore in more detail the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now let us all rest in the good news that the Holy Spirit alone can oppose and subdue our flesh and enable us to fulfill the law so that we are delivered from its harsh dominion. In Christ you have been freed from the curse and the condemnation of sin. You are now free. You are now to f- free to serve one another through love, in love, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not no problem. It is a problem. It is an impossible task apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Someone reminded me this morning as we were looking at the kingdom of God of this verse, and I want to end with this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That kind of righteousness, that kind of peace, that kind of joy is in the midst of the fight And it's a fight to the finish. But Christ has won the victory and we rest in his victory. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this utter realistic portrayal of life as it is. Father, we thank you that in your wise plan, that there still is a struggle because we are absolutely dependent upon you. Father, if we went from grace to glory in a flash, where would our dependence upon you be? So Father, as we walk by the Spirit, help us to grow in our thanksgiving that the Spirit is with us and may we be all the more eager to be led by the Spirit. Father, would you encourage those among us who in the midst of the battle are thinking that they need to to take off their pack and lay down. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to bring others alongside others and help us to walk, as we will see in a few weeks, in step with the Spirit 
and in step with one another. Thank you for your word, Father. May your Holy Spirit indeed drive it home and enable us to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.